So, if you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it up to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. As you're turning to James, I want to tell you about an apple tree. And when my family and I lived in Cedar Rapids, we had this apple tree in the corner of our backyard, and our kids loved that tree. It was a great tree climbing tree, so they always seemed to be up in it, and uh, they always seemed to be around and playing. But also, we got quite a few apples from it every fall. And the best part of it was we used those apples to make apple oatmeal cake. Apple oatmeal cake is one of the greatest desserts ever invented because of its versatility. You can enjoy this dessert after dinner, but it also is very appropriate for a snack, and it is very easy to justify for breakfast. I'm telling you, it's the most amazing dessert ever, but I digress. Uh, This apple tree uh, would produce these apples every year, but one year it did something really, really odd. Uh, I'm I'm thinking this is like 2007, because I think Zion would have been about uh, one year old when this uh, happened. Um, It was, you know, in June, July, it's putting out the buds, starting to put out the fruit, everything was looking normal. But then right about the time that the fruit is supposed to, you know, start growing and, and begin to slowly shade from green over towards red, we noticed some of them weren't going kind of red. They were going a little more yellow. There was a handful that were kind of going orange, and some even had like almost this like purple hue. And those ones were looking really sick. They just weren't getting very big. So we started thinking something's wrong with our apple tree. Well, we're not horticulturists, so we did nothing about it. So we're just kind of, you know, it's just there happening. Well, then uh, a, a few weeks later, Karis comes in and is like, Mom, Dad, something's really happening with the tree. And, and I wasn't home at the time. Uh, Land goes out and looks at it, and apparently the the fruit that was a little more colored, it started taking on just these odd shapes. They they weren't looking like apples. Within just a couple weeks later, we found that those yellow ones were taking on a pear shape. The kind of orangish ones were really, really round, and those purple ones just kind of stayed small and kind of clustered. And then we discovered that they weren't sick apples, that it actually were pears and oranges and grapes. Now, I know none of you are believing me. And so we knew no one would believe us. So we took a bunch of photographs. And here is the best photo that we took. Is that not the most shocking, remarkable thing you've ever seen? It's also a complete lie. Isn't AI photography amazing? Uh, All I did was typed in uh, apple tree with grapes, pears, and uh, oranges, and this is what we get. Uh, I I, I realize I'm your pastor. I should be not telling lies. I should be speaking in a way that you would trust me. And the thing is, the large, large majority of you do trust me, but admit it. As I was starting to say that suddenly the yellow fruit were actually pears, actually oranges, something in you goes, wait a second. Because we all know, apple trees don't produce pears. They don't produce oranges. They don't even produce pineapples. Apples trees produce apples. I think that is why it is so disconcerting to us when we meet someone who proclaims to be a follower of Jesus, but everything in their life denies Christ-like fruit. Have you ever known someone like that? Someone who would claim to be a Jesus follower. They do certain things to try to help hold that standard that, you know, whether it's going to church or listening to Christian music. But everything about the actions in life, even the words that they speak in person or online, seems to deny God. Whenever I think about this passage in James, I can't help but think of the boss 
of one of my friends back in Colorado. Back in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, Leon and I lived in Colorado where I was the worship director for a small little church plant. Rich played bass on our worship team. Rich got this new job with this Christian company. It had a Christianized name. And, and it, again, this is in 2000. And so this is when video teleconferencing was just beginning to get going. So way before Zoom was on everyone's computer. And so the, the equipment was super expensive. Only big, large companies could afford this stuff. And in 2001, when uh, 9-11 happened, people were afraid to get on planes. And so the video teleconferencing industry just took off. Rich worked in sales and looked to be making a ton of money. So he joins this new company. He's super excited. And then he starts finding out that his boss, while bragging to everyone that he's a Christian, does everything and anything to deny that reality. He was manipulative. He lied. He tried to cheat his salesmen out of their commission so he could keep it for himself. Rich said it was so bad that there was a handful of non-Christians that worked for the company. These guys began to not only mock Christianity, but they used their boss's evidence that Christianity was a sham. At this time, in, in the late 90s, there was a famous musical group. Some of you have heard of them, DC Talk. And they had a song where they included a Brennan Manning quote. And this is what the quote said. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door, and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Rich said that his boss was the epitome of that quote. And yet, you know, inside, if someone is going to be a Jesus follower, there has to be some consistency. Even if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, you still expect someone who proclaims to be a Jesus follower to at least look and act a little bit like what you would think the Bible teaches. Your Bibles are hopefully open there to James 3. What you're going to see today and hear is James is going to say the hardest area for you to bring consistency to your Christian walk is your tongue. The tongue is so difficult to tame. And if we are going to be people and a church that is a blessing to the world, that does live like Jesus lived, that means we also need our words to reflect the character of Jesus so that is why we're going to eventually get back to Acts, but we're going to take two weeks here to talk about the power of the tongue. This week, we're going to hear the power, of the, tongue, the, the power that the tongue has. Next week, we're going to talk about how do we go about allowing God to work in us? How do we go about making sure our words are in sync? So this week, we're kind of talking about the dangers, and next week, about how we go about avoiding those dangers. So if your Bible is open there to James 3, let me get ready to uh, read, uh, and let me pray for us as we begin. Heavenly Father, as we get ready to read from James 3 today, I pray that you would be our teacher. Each and every one of us that has walked into this room today or has joined online or listened to a podcast later in the week, we're each in a different place. Uh, some are listening right now, and they're grieving there, there have been things that have been happening in life, loss of a loved one, a loss of a dream, loss of expectations. And, and so their mind isn't fully here. God, I, I pray that you would comfort them, that you'd help them to mourn and grieve well, that they'd run to you. And, and by doing so, that you'd be able to even encourage them through this. 
Some of us, Lord, we're walking in here and, and we are thankful. We're thankful for the week we've had because of the thing we achieved or the, the promotion we got, the, the deepening of relationships, maybe even meeting a new friend. We're, we've got some excitement. And so we're eager to hear from you because we know that you love us, you're for us, and we've seen it this week. Some of us, we're just doing this because this is what we do every Sunday. We've heard these words out of James 3 before. We don't think this is really a big problem or issue. And yet I believe you have something for them too. And Lord, for the person that this is a struggle for, they find that their words, their tongue trips them up and gets them into trouble. I pray that today would not be a day where they feel beat up, but rather a day where they feel encouraged, challenged, convicted, and inspired to let you work in their lives, that their tongues would reflect the character of Christ. So Father, I think it's absolutely ridiculous that I would think that I could somehow speak to that wide range of people. But I have full confidence that you know them, you love them, and you can do what only you can do. So Father, I pray you'd take my meager words and you would use them to help them pierce heart and mind for your glory and their joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, today we are doing verses one through 12. So join me there at verse one in James chapter three. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, by, uh, sorry, they, and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a fire is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh water and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce fruit, figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Today, we're going to hear James tell us that the tongue has the power to do three things. So if you're a fill-in-the-blank person, you can pull out your hand out, and on that right side, uh, you can write these three things. The tongue has the power to drive, destroy, and deny. Drive, destroy, and deny. Now, this means this is a sanctified sermon because I actually have three points, and they all alliterate. Uh, if you're a first-time guest, that's a joke because I rarely have an outline like this and rarely does it alliterate. All right, uh, so first, drive. Uh, we notice as he starts what we know as chapter three, but as he starts this whole section on this topic of the tongue, he starts by talking about teachers. 
Now, as he talks about teachers, though, he's not talking about public educators. He's not talking about homeschool moms. He's talking about people like me, teachers of the faith. Well, what is a teacher of the faith supposed to do? They're supposed to drive people towards Christ, to direct them towards Christ's likeness. And what is the tool that these teachers of the faith use? Words. While words can be, um, I'm sorry, while props can be very powerful and helpful, while a, a chart on a screen can be very informational, it's the words that are powerful. Words have the power to move hearts and to move masses. Words have the power to bring conviction or joy. Words have had the power throughout all of history to drive people to the highest of highs or even to the lowest of lows. James knows the power of words. James was the half-brother of Jesus. Now, he did not believe that his brother was the son of God until after the resurrection. But even as James sees his older brother off with his disciples, there were probably opportunities to go and see him, and he realizes that the crowds are gathering, and he sees the effect that Jesus' words would have upon the crowds. He knows words are powerful. And so that is why he gives us two metaphors to show us the power of words. The first one is there in verse 3. He says, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Now, when you think of a horse, you probably envision a beast like this. A typical horse weighs about 900 to 1,400 pounds. If you go with a large draft horse like a Clydesdale, they can get up to like 1,800, 1,900 pounds. So we are talking large, large animals. And yet, you can just take a small metal bit, put it in their mouth, connect it to the reins, and you now can control that horse. You can direct where it goes. You can drive it. But just in case James's audience didn't capture the, the idea from that metaphor, he gives them a second metaphor. He shifts from the field to the sea. He talks about a ship. Verse 4. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. Now, when I decided to do a Google image search for a ship, I was seeing a lot of ships, but I'm finding out like they were 17th century, 18th century. So I, I had to work harder, and I finally did a first century ship. And this is what I found. This here is a replica of, of a merchant ship from the first century. Uh, a group of Israel, uh, Israelites had, um, I should say, people who lived in Israel, put together, found plans, put, put this together, and this is a typical merchant ship of the day. So as I'm looking at that ship, I'm thinking, well, it's not that big. I'm not sure I would use the word ship. I like boat. Because, I mean, it's not an ocean liner. But then it, it hit me, but it's not a canoe either. But then as I began to study this more, I discovered there were much larger ships. In fact, the scriptures talk about one of these. In, in Acts chapter 27, the Apostle Paul is on a ship on his way to Rome, where he's supposed to be going to be taken to the Pharaoh, and they have a shipwreck. 
And we learned during that shipwreck that there were 267 persons on the boat. I'm telling you, there are not 267 people who are going to fit on that. So we're talking a very large ship. But whether you're talking a merchant boat or a ship that was carrying 267 people, it's a large ship that's powered by the wind, but it's driven by the rudder. You heard James say that wherever the pilot wants them to go, he can just shift it and decide, are we going north, south, east, or west? Where's our destination? And he can direct the boat to go there. His point is, whether it's a small bit in the horse of a mouth or a small rudder on a ship, your teeny tiny tongue has the power to drive and direct. The point is, though, where are you going to drive people? Whether those around you or even yourself. Because your tongue has the power to drive people to what is good and right and beneficial, or it can tear down and destroy. We, we are going to talk today about the power, the positive power of words. But because of what James does first, let's first talk about the negative power. The second thing we see, he says, is that the tongue has the power to destroy. Join me in verse 5, halfway through. In the ESV, they start a new paragraph with it. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. All right, now, you have just figured out where we get the title for our series from. It's not based on Acts chapter 2, which we looked at a few weeks ago. It's coming from right here in, in James 5 and 6. But then as you read it, you might be thinking, well, isn't James going a little over the top? I mean, seriously, that the, the tongue is set on fire by hell? I mean, hell is like where like the fire never ceases and the worm never dies. Like these are eternal fires. Like this is a little overboard, isn't it? And yet, have you ever had someone say really, really harsh words to you? And those words continue to burn in your ears hours later, days later, years later? It uh, just happened uh, uh, this week uh, when I was on Twitter. saw an author said that she had trouble falling asleep the night before because of some really, really harsh words that were said earlier in the day. She, she tried to, you know, clarify, like, I know it shouldn't bother me and, and I, I should be above this and that person really doesn't even matter in my life. And yet, the words continued to burn. When I read her tweet, I couldn't help but think of the wife of one of my really, really good friends. Uh, his wife went through something really tragic in college. And because she's a bit of a writer, she, she wrote uh, about her journey just to help herself process through things. Well, then uh, a couple years later, Zondervan put on a writing contest. This is back in the early 2000s when uh, uh, like young adults were writing these memoir books, which I think is hilarious. Like 20-somethings should not be writing memoirs. Wait till you're old like me. You know, but they're, they're writing these memoirs, and they were becoming bestsellers. And so Zondervan wanted to look for some more fresh authors, and so they put together this writing contest. And so my friend's wife pulls out her work, dusts it off, edits it a bit, and submits it, and wins. She won the contest. And the winning entry got to have their book not only expanded and edited, it got to be published. And so her work was published and put out for the masses. Now, it did not sell great. But when you go on Amazon, 
It's at four and a half stars, a bunch of five-star reviews. And yet my friend Nate told me his wife had to stop reading the reviews because all it took was one. I went on Amazon, found her book, and I found the one. Here was the harshest sentence in the review. Some parts of the book just seemed self-indulgent. It's a memoir. It's supposed to be about her journey. And even silly. She's talking about her fiancé dying. And yet this is silly. At its worst, the book reads like an egg-headed parody of theology. It was not a theological work. This was harsh, harsh criticism. Here are all these five-star reviews. This book was so helpful. It was so encouraging. I, I cried. I really felt. But the one kept Sarah from being able to sleep, being able to go forward. She just finally was like, I can't read any more comments because those words continued to burn. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words burn like hell. Now, what I want to do today is I want to, I'm going to flip this, but I do this cautiously because James does not do what I'm about to do. So take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt, but I don't think what I'm about to do is wrong and, and unbiblical. In fact, I think it's very, very biblical. I just want you to realize this is not where James goes. So it's Aaron's diversion. But what I want to do is I'm going to flip it because while fire can destroy, fire can also be helpful. Fire can warm Fire can be used to cook food. Fire can even be used to help purify. And when used the right way, your words can encourage and warm or even correct and purify. When I was uh, nine years old, my family discovered that there was a small little summer swim team in, in my hometown. So because my brother and I loved the water, we decided to, to do the summer swim team. And there have been very few things in my life that I've just done and been decent at. This was one of them. With, by, by the second year, it was just you know, a 9, 10 age group. So now the second year, I'm 10 years old, and I'm one of the better swimmers, not only on the team, but kind of in our small little swim league. And so I'm having some success. Well, during one of our home swim meets, a group of us little 9, 10-year-olds are sitting around, and we're starting talking about who's the best. Well, to me, this is not opinion. This is fact. All you have to do is see who consistently touches the other end of the wall first. They're the best. So I just sit there and said, well, Tom's fastest at freestyle. Nick's best at breaststroke. I forget who was best at butterfly. And I was the best at backstroke. Now, I did not feel that I was boasting. I'm just simply stating what was true. And yet, it turned out that I deeply hurt one of my classmates, one of my swim teammates, Steve. Steve's parents were the coaches. Steve had been on the swim team since he was six. This is only my second year out. And I'm sitting there bragging about how I'm already better than him. Now, I was clueless. But one of the 13, I think it was a 13, 14-year-old girl on the team, overheard what was going on and later pulled me aside and said, hey, Aaron, I don't think you realize what happened. You said those words and you hurt Steve. I had no idea. My words burned Steve, but her words purified me. I can look back at that moment and realize that the bragging and boasting I would have done in life was drastically reduced because of her words. Now, it doesn't mean I probably haven't messed up, 
I, I probably have unknowingly bragged about something. And, and God, in his graciousness, has given me lots of opportunities to fail and humble me. But all I know is that the boasting I could have done in life was drastically reduced because a 13-year-old swim teammate pulled me aside and said, Hey, Aaron, you hurt them. Your words can burn or your words can build. The intent, though, is behind it. As you use your tongue, are you trying to burn, to destroy them, to destroy their reputation, to destroy their emotional state, to to rip them apart so that you somehow feel better and more powerful? Or are you saying words that are designed to warm and encourage or even to purify? Now, I realize that sometimes we say words that are intended to try to build up and do the opposite. I'm thinking particularly of teasing. Some people love to tease. The idea is, oh, I'm going to say this thing and it's going gonna, it's gonna to bring a laugh. But what usually ends up happening is everyone around laughs except the person that's being teased. You've unintentionally burned them. So I would really encourage you, be very, very careful about your teasing because you don't want to end up burning them with those eternal fires from hell. Also, a word to parents. Your words are powerful. Now, many of you know that. You realize that. I mean, some of you in this room, you're in your 30s, 40s, 60s, and you've had parents say words, and those words are still ringing in your head. So we, I think most of us know the words parents say are powerful. But parents, as powerful as you think your words are, they're even more powerful than that. So be very careful with them. Because in those moments of frustration, you're going to want to unleash you're, just, you're not going to understand why they're continuing to be so foolish, so immature. They're kids. Use your words to encourage and help, but also to try to build them up. Yes, there are times where you, you'll need to correct them, but use the fire wisely. Your words have the power to drive. They also have the power to destroy. But there's one more area that James wants us to understand, that your words have the power to deny. Look down there at verse 9. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Every time I read these words, I can't help but think of that story I opened with about the boss of Rich. Rich and one of his co-workers outbid a Fortune 500 company that had an internal video teleconferencing uh, group. They came in from the outside, outbid them, and won the contract. It was a $35 million contract in the, I think, either late fall, winter 2001 or early 2002. Rich and his sales partner were slated to receive a commission of $2 million. A million for each of them. Our tiny little church plant was so excited because Rich was like, man, we're going to be able to like do this and this and this. He, I mean, Rich had one of the most generous hearts you've ever known. And yet the boss knew That if he fired them, he continued to need to pay them the commission even when they went somewhere else. But if they quit on their own, according to the terms of the contract, they would do nothing. And so this boss 
manipulated to do anything and everything he could to get these two guys to quit. And can you believe it? He succeeded. Rich hung on the longest, but it finally reached a point where Rich was like, this is not worth a million dollars. That's how bad it was. The guy ended up having to change the name of the company because no one wanted to work with him. And eventually he ended up out of the industry entirely because once people figured out who the new company was, they still didn't want to work with him. And yet this guy bragged on his website uh, uh, when you called, left a voicemail about his faith. His company had a Christianized name. He told you what church he went to. He even bragged about all the generosity that he did. And it turns out he actually didn't do those things. He was the biggest fraud in the world. And what it did is it caused people to deny the reality of the gospel. If your words are not in sync with the character of Christ, you are denying the work of God in your life, but you're also denying God's love for other people. Now, in January, we started off with 21 days of prayer, and we were praying for gospel growth. In week one of that series, we prayed for God to be growing his gospel within us individually. Week two, we prayed for God to grow us as a church family together in our understanding of the gospel. And then in week three, we prayed for God to grow this gospel around us, that we would see people blessed and impact by God's love. In order for us to see that resonate out, it means we have to be the people whose words are consistent with the character of Christ. But as James has been warning us all throughout this, our words can drive people away from God. They can destroy people's faith. They can deny the reality of God's love. So now the question becomes, okay, so how do I do this? How do, to use James's language, how do I bring forth fresh water and not pour out this salty water? How do I produce consistent fruit where my apple tree is producing apples and not something rotten and false? How do I go about doing this? That's what we're going to see next week. Heavenly Father, uh, I just pray that these words that we've talked about today would uh, be used by you. Even though next week we're going to hear about where the, the well of these words come from, I pray you'd begin this week to help us do these things. I pray for my brother and sister in Christ that this is an area of struggle. I pray that they would not feel uh, you trying to uh, uh, burn them down, but rather that you were trying, seeking to purify them and that they would admit these things and, and, and confess them to you. Lord, some of us, we've used our words in, in harsh ways, in cruel ways. Thank you so much for your forgiveness, but God, help us to be the kind of people who will go to them and, and seek their forgiveness. Lord, help us also be the kind of people that we speak gracious words, that we would speak an abundance of words so that out of the abundance of grace-filled, building-up type of words, when we have to bring those crucial, critical things, we would be able to share that, and it's accepted. But God, I pray that today would be a purifying word from you to us, that you would help us to allow you to have control even of our tongues, that we would let your Holy Spirit be like a bit in our mouth, that you can turn and control us to drive us towards you and help us to speak the words of life to others. Because Jesus, that's what you did. You were the ultimate teacher of faith. Your words were powerful. Your words contained life itself. Many of us in this room have found life in you. 
We want now your life to spill out of us, not just through our actions, not just in our presence, but even in our very words. Father, help us to practice these things at home so that they spill out at school, at work, in the neighborhood, in our clubs, on our sports teams, that wherever you send us, it's your words that are on our lips so that we are helping people see how much you love them, how much you are for them, and what you've done for them through a cross and an empty tomb. So Father, today, help us to submit ourselves to you, including our tongues. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm right now personally reading through uh, the Old Testament, and uh, I'm in uh, Deuteronomy. And uh, there have been some moments where God has spoken pretty harshly to the Israelite people. And yet when you really stop and look at it, you realize that those harsh words aren't designed to burn them down and destroy them. God is going to use the Jewish people through them to bring Christ. And so he wants to build them up. He wants to purify them. And so there are times in the scriptures where you hear God talk about his love for his people, even back in the Old Testament where he seems angry. So what I thought would be helpful today as we go to the communion table is to hear some of these words from God to us. I'm going to read from Isaiah 43. And and as you hear these words, I want you to remember the context is God writing to the Israelites. He's speaking through the prophet Isaiah to his people. These people who keep wandering off, wanting to worship other gods, are just going through the duty, and, and God is wanting to purify them. But part of it is he speaks these lavish, loving words over them. But as you hear them, I want you to hear these words through the cross. That as you realize Jesus went to a cross to die for your sin, these words pertain to you, even if you are not an ancient Israelite. So listen to Isaiah 43. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. We hear the the truth in those last two words. We see it in Jesus. He says that, I give men in return for you. Jesus himself, a man, gave his life for us so that we could see exactly what is said here, that God loves you, that you're precious in his eyes, that no matter what you go through, whether you go through fire or water, he is with you. He will not abandon you. He has not forsaken you. Now, he has the power to rescue you out of this right now, So feel free to pray and ask him to do it. 
but he also has the power and wisdom to keep you there so that the fires can continue to refine you into the image of Jesus. The waters can continue to wash you. So today, submit it all to him. Surrender your heart, surrender your life, surrender your tongue. So as we take those communion elements, may these words of Isaiah 43 be upon us. May we realize that through that, that bread, the body of Jesus broken for us, that God was with us. That as you open up that cup and you drink of that juice representing the blood of Jesus, it is God saying, I love you. You are precious to me. I gave it all for you. I ask you and invite you to give it all to me because that is where your greatest place of joy will be found. So at any time during the song, feel free to go to the communion elements. And as you bring them back to your place, remember to take them in remembrance of him.